Have you heard of something called smart fabric? And no, I don't mean a gorgeously tailored pair of slacks that make you look like a university professor. I'm talking about biosensor-laden suits that can measure your vitals as you go through your day. How about quote-unquote psychotextiles that interact directly with your brain? When it comes to today's advanced wearable tech, the high in high fashion may very well refer to its IQ. Why then did a fashion designer get rejected for three quarters of a million dollars in R&D claims? Where did he stumble on the runway to reimbursement? Okay, I'm going to stop with the puns because this case begs some serious questions. About joining Where did us the designer, Leon Max, go wrong with his claim? And what does it say about the four-part test when it comes to the arts? Joining us for today's discussion into the finer and fine arts points of R&D compliance, I'd like to welcome manager of R&D tax credit at Cross Border Solutions, Lydia Clowney. Welcome, Lydia. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. And I will say, I think the puns are a perfect fit for today's topic. So keep them coming. We try our best. In this case, Leon Max versus Commissioner, the tax court denied the designer's R&D claim saying that it failed three of the four parts of the four-part test. Specifically, they said the work falls under the IRC's exclusion for cosmetic changes. One of the first aspects they actually looked at was the element of uncertainty as laid out in section 174. You need to be able to prove that experimentation and research are necessary to solve something unknown. The court said the designer already knew the answers to the questions he posed, such as how to alter garments to be plus sized, how to determine proper thread size, etc. So let's discuss where the designer went wrong here and what could have been done to better fit the criterion of uncertainty. Sure. And you're right. The court took a dim view of the uncertainties that were faced by the designer in this situation. So like you mentioned, some of the uncertainties that the taxpayer, the designer in the situation said were part of this process were how to alter garments, determining proper thread size. They talked about aligning prints, fitting garments appropriately, these kinds of activities. And the court said that essentially that the taxpayer, the designer had gone through all of these uncertainties in the past in different collections. So saying, well, just because you're doing this for the current year or current seasons line, well, you did it last year. You had to look at what kind of thread to use for this other garment. So you're really just doing sort of a routine research and development, maybe or routine working through of these questions in order to come to what is the, the ultimate optimal garment. And so the court said, that because the company faced these issues regularly and hired employees who, you know, specifically hired employees who were knowledgeable about these kinds of activities, that they are simply common solutions to common problems and thus aren't adequate in order to have that kind of uncertainty that qualifies for the R&D credit. So they're almost suggesting here that a problem has to be uncommon or, or the solution has to be, you know, there has to be an uncommon solution to an uncommon problem in order for us to have that requisite uncertainty for the credit. And so, you know, what could that look like? I think that we'd have to cast our brains way outside of the normal process of designing and creating clothes, you know, maybe we'd be designing and fitting a 
pinstripe suit for a skyscraper, for instance. That would be something that would be so far outside of the normal scope of what clothing design looks like that, you know, potentially a, the court would have thought that was more of what would fit into this bucket or maybe making a new space suit that we, we have space suits for the moon, but hey, we need a different one because now we're going to Mars and there's a whole different set of technological challenges there. You know, I think that's kind of where at least this case is pushing the activities to have to go in order to have that qualified development, which I think is a little odd because there's no requirement in the code that activities need to be outside of what I would say is the routine. And in this case, we're looking at clothing design and manufacture, but we've seen this in other areas that are much more high tech as well, both in audit situations and also some through the courts as well, where the IRS has suggested that if something is routine, if a person's normal job, normal activities at work is maybe engineering or something, that those activities are precluded from being part of the R&D credit. And, and that feels like a stretch to many of us practitioners because it, it's not part of the actual internal revenue code. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. The next element they looked at was the requirement that the R&D be, quote, technological in nature. The designer claimed that he was applying chemistry to determine color fastness and using engineering for size and draping, along with material sciences. The court used a plain meaning analysis to deny these elements of the claim. What is the plain meaning analysis and where might the designer have improved his chances for this element of the technology? So what that means is more or less that the court is going to the dictionary definition of what these terms mean to say, does it make sense that we're applying these in the ways that the taxpayer has applied them? What's the literal meaning of chemistry, for instance, or material sciences? And so they define chemistry as, and I'm quoting here from the, the court case, a science that deals with the composition, structure, and properties of substances and the transformations they undergo. And then material science is the scientific study of the properties and applications of materials. And so they said that, and the case does get a little bit sassy here. They say something about how for instance, the shrinkage tests that the taxpayer was employing to figure out if the material would react the way it was expected to upon laundering. Well, they mention these shrinkage tests and they say, observing whether the fabric shrinks after using home appliances is necessary in the clothing business, but it is not chemistry. 
Well, it doesn't say why it isn't chemistry. And it also doesn't say why that isn't material sciences. So if I'm taking a material and it has unknown properties, maybe this fabric is new to me as the taxpayer, and I'm not sure how it's going to react because it's different from the materials I've used before. Well, then wouldn't material science be understanding the properties and applications of that material and how they change depending on different criteria, different usages, if I launder it at the hot rather than the cold temperature. So, you know, the case seems to be very clear. Oh, we don't think this is qualified. How could you possibly think this is a material science when you're using a home appliance? You know, but there's, again, no requirement that we'd be using any particular test or machine in order to be conducting our experimentation or in order for it to be technological in nature. And so I, I struggle to see how you couldn't call this material science. And I will say, and when we're talking about court cases, we're talking about the R&D credit. We call the R&D credit, it's a, a matter of legislative grace. So it's something that we are being, it's a gift we're being given. And the burden is going to be on the taxpayer in these situations to prove that they have met all of the four-part tests and that it, it truly does correspond to the requirements for the credit. And so the taxpayer in this case said that the shrinkage test, he called that chemistry. Maybe the court would have taken better to the argument if he had called it material sciences and made that connection more clearly. We're not sure. But a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about these court cases is what was the argument the taxpayer made? And if that was inadequate, then even if the underlying activities could have been good, we're still not going to get a taxpayer-friendly outcome. Indeed. And the last element of the test the designer failed was the requirement that the scientific method be applied. The court found the designer's methods were not a formal series of experiments with a clear hypothesis, the old guess, test, and revise method. Where do you think the designer went wrong here? And how could he have better met this requirement? So this is another area where I wonder whether better documentation by the taxpayer may have produced a more taxpayer-friendly outcome. Again, the case does concede that the taxpayer went through a method of experimentation, that they came up with an idea, that they tried it out in a real-life situation, and then addressed whether it was adequate or not to provide a solution, and then you know, went back and tried another thing. That's another way of saying systematic trial and error. And systematic trial and error is an acceptable method under not only the Internal Revenue Code, but also under the case law that we have. So the courts have been getting closer and closer to requiring a traditional scientific method as necessary in order to constitute that, that process of experimentation. But we're not currently there yet. And so I wonder if it might have been a documentation issue more so than an activity issue. And even to get a little bit further on this point, the court did concede that some of the activities did seem to be a process of experimentation that might be good, but that the purpose was too difficult to tease apart from what was functional versus what was aesthetic. So if they are, you could say that there's some experimentation going on when they produce a prototype, let's say, hey, a pair of jeans, for instance, and we think we've got a great design and we actually stitch together a prototype 
and get it on a fit model. So this is an actual human being who is putting on this pair of jeans and seeing whether they're whether they're going to work, whether their function and aesthetic is appropriate. And there are a number of things that they're looking at there. They might be looking at transparency of material, whether the seams are going to you know, be able to withstand wear and tear, a lot of other things, some of which are you know, functional in nature and some of which are aesthetic. And the court said that because they weren't able to determine which portion of this activity related to the function of those genes and which portion related to aesthetics, that they essentially couldn't give any credit to any of it being for the function. They said, if you can't bifurcate, then we're not going to give you any of it. Right, right, right. I'm almost reminded of not too long ago reading Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson and uh, how fiercely he believed that technology would tear down the walls that a lot of bureaucratic institutions feel should be there between art and science. And uh, you almost see this happening right here in this court case. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of the tax court's rejection is the language in it. They really tell the life story of this designer and sing his praises throughout, which is very kind. But that seems interesting. Uh, Does the tax court usually get into that level of detail when they issue a rejection? or, Or does that speak to the particular judge who might have some sympathies for this designer, or at least the intention here. I wonder, maybe the judge was a fan. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure about that, but I I will say these cases can get pretty interesting. And I never mind reading them. I think they're kind of fun. You get a lot of personality in a lot of them. And this backstory, certainly in this case in particular, gave you a lot of detail. It almost took you through a, a story about this guy before you get to the point where they say, and you can't have any credit. I guess it's a tragedy. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. But you'd be surprised how interesting and how personal some of these cases are. I think they're one of the uh, overlooked areas where where we can find some good old-fashioned humor. One of my particular favorites is this genre, frivolous tax arguments. It it tends to be where (laughs) taxpayers are asserting that they shouldn't have to pay tax to the federal government at all, period, or that they should get unlimited personal deductions and, you know, my dog's food because, I don't know, they have, again, it's a frivolous argument. Right. In particular, there, the judges get quite salty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're a good read. I'd love to come back to something you said earlier about Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs and Apple is such an apt idea to kind of throw in here because he was such a proponent of form and function stepping along together and being almost impossible to really separate. And I think that that's what we're seeing here in this case, too. There was another quote from this case that that jumped out at me. Most clothing design is inherently style-driven. 
the function of all pants is essentially the same, to stay up and cover the wearer from waist to somewhere below the knee. Every other consideration when buying pants is one of cosmetics. Well, that on its face, and now I'm done quoting, but that on its face is kind of a crazy assertion. To say that the function of all pants is the same and that it's simply to stay up and cover the wearer from the waist to the knee, I can think of a million different examples of functions that pants have <laughs> that are more than that. I mean, just think of jeans versus, you know, a pair of athleisure stretch pants. You know, one's right. going to be built for durability and for being able to hold a lot of things in your pockets or, or maybe even a hammer on a, a special loop. And then on the other hand, you have your, your stretch pants, you know, maybe they're built for durability, but in a completely different way. And maybe they're built for moisture wicking or, or something like that. The transparency issue is completely different. So the court's making these assertions about how simple it is that clothes must simply be cosmetic. But even in their own language, they're kind of showing that that's not really true. Right, right, right. I'm even getting the sense, I'm I'm just opening the document text where the judge kind of went into the designer's biography. I kind of get a sense here that the judge might feel kind of like how I do looking at this, which is the law should accommodate art in the intersection between art and science. And this is an evolution of our thinking just along the lines of Steve Jobs and everything he believed. But unfortunately, the law as it's written right now doesn't quite accommodate for that. And it seems that's kind of part of the problem, or at least I'm seeing it, you know, what we call a scientific process is not the same as the artistic process, but they do have a lot in common that perhaps new laws should provide for. I agree with you. And I think that what we're seeing is that the guidance we're getting is coming through these cases instead of how we would probably prefer it, which would be additional regulation or a clarification of the law. I, you know, I think we all acknowledge and understand that you know, purely aesthetic changes or development are not going to be qualified. We go back to the code and we say that cosmetic, seasonal, changing a color, for instance, if this guy were just taking the same pair of jeans and we're making them red this year instead of last year, they were green. You know, no, I, I don't think that that should be qualified development. But when you have cases like this, where there's this sort of intimate tangling of the functional with the aesthetic, I think that it would be great if there were more guidance on how to tease them out. And, you know, I guess you're going to hear me come back to documentation a lot. Yeah. Documentation is how we prove that what we say is happening is actually happening. And I'd love to see a case like this where the documentation were better and we could see whether some of these things might be okay if we have the proper support. You know, when we're looking at some of these tests that the court seems to have a, a dim view on, like for instance, the one where they're using the home washing machine, well, would they have liked that better if we were using a really high tech machine that was going to tell us the chemical properties of this or that before and after it was hit by this chemical or something like that? And we had maybe a spreadsheet that would show different levels of uh, reflectivity or the way the fibers maybe bunch together or then relax depending on a, a different treatment. You know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that a similar taxpayer couldn't get there, but we don't have great evidence of what would be sufficient in order to prove that case. 
even with or without necessarily that guidance or let's say significant change to the law, just taking things as they are right now, do you feel there's room for those engaged in the arts and humanities to apply successfully to the R&D more than they would think is the case? Or do you think it'll always be an uphill battle due to the credit provision specifically saying it must be in the hard sciences? I think that it's always worth examining. I think it's going to be a tougher hill to climb when we're talking about arts and humanities. But if the underlying activity meets the four-part test, there's no reason for folks to shy away from it. So what I'd say is that we want to be sure that we're really looking very closely at the technical activity, at the experimentation, and not try to pull in the tangential, more arty aspects, but really focus in on what is that piece of the activity that's technological in nature and that's working through uncertainty in a systematic way. If those are in place, then I I think that there's every opportunity for a project that's otherwise related to the arts or humanities to qualify. I'd say, you know, it's, it's going to be a tougher hill to climb, Because, you know, we do see some prejudice, I think, amongst exam teams. And I think we see here in the court cases somewhat as well. So, you know, you're always going to want to be sure to document, document, document. And it's important to be able to tell the story in the right way. So you have to speak with the language that's being requested. And and here what we're talking about is, you know, give me the hard science, give me the, the really super technical Show me how you thought it was going to be at the forefront, and then you came up with an idea about how you could solve it, and then how the results of your testing fed back into your design. You know, if all those things are happening, I don't see why we wouldn't be able to get past the aspect of something maybe being related to the arts. Again, I will say we have to meet all four parts of the test. You noted at the beginning that in this case in particular, the courts deemed that three of the four tests weren't passed. And I'll tell you, they didn't determine that the fourth test was passed. They just didn't look at it. They decided they didn't need to because none of the other, you know, the taxpayer hadn't met the burden for any of the other ones. So this case isn't telling us whether they're of the opinion that creating a garment is a permitted purpose. So we don't have that kind of useful precedent here. I guess that's an open question. I think you could absolutely make an argument, but again, you're going to want to make it quite tailored and you might have to shrink back to just one component of your design process and not include the larger part that may be artistic or, you know, aesthetic in nature. Indeed. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know, 
know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. We'd like to thank Lydia again for joining us on today's show. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in our tax suite. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer, Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch everyone next week.